long years ago, we made a tryst with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. A moment comes, which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old to the new. It is fitting that at this solemn moment we take the pledge of dedication to the service of India and her people and to the still larger cause of humanity. Hello everyone and welcome to India Colonized, a podcast dedicated to South Asia's modern and contemporary history. I am your co-host Shrutika Chauhan and you are listening to Guftagu, a special series where we discuss and engage with varied authors and scholars of South Asian history. In this episode of Guftagu, we have with us Dr. Sana Haroon, author of the book The Mosques of Colonial South Asia, a social and legal history of Muslim worship. Dr. Sana Haroon is an associate professor of history and Asian studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She is a social historian with a particular interest in Muslim religious organizations in colonial North India. Her research, including her monograph, Frontier of Faith, engages with theory on borderlands, religious reformism, special history and governance to provide an alternative to theories of political Islam which have dominated understandings of Islam in South Asia. In this book, Dr. Haroon examines the dilemmas of public worship in a colonial secular state by showing how mosques became spaces of social influence and control, she traces the ascent of prayer leaders and mosque custodians as these lesser-known counterparts to Sufis. Through the use of legal records, archives and multiple case studies, Dr. Haroon ties a series of narrative threads stretching across multiple regions in colonial South Asia ranging from the late 19th century to the mid-20th century and from Rangoon to Lahore. This book centers on the mosque as a site of social change, sectarian debate and legal regulation. The result is a highly original take on a crucial aspect of Muslim public life, the mosque that historians have mostly overlooked. This interview explores and examines such provided stances in the book, along with other broader perspectives on colonial secularism. Here's the conversation with Dr. Sana Haroon. Hello and welcome, Dr. Sana Haroon on India Colonized and our discussion series, Guftagu. We are glad to have you here to discuss your book, The Mosques of Colonial uh, South Asia. So before we start to talk about your book itself, could you tell us a bit about uh, yourself, the intellectual journey you have, the people who've influenced you, or the books that have influenced you. Certainly. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and great to be talking to you. It's a wonderful podcast. I've been familiarizing myself with it over the last few weeks, and I found some really fun episodes. Uh, and I'm so um, happy to be able to be part of this series. So thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, Umar and your colleagues also. Uh, my journey uh, is probably a pretty typical one in many ways. I was a college in the United States for my undergraduate degree and um, 
took a lot of history courses. I was a history major and then I wandered on from there and wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do. I explored different options and then finally uh, worked in a bank for a while. And then I went to grad school at SOAS, where you are right now. And I did my PhD there. And it was there, uh, and I was working around ideas about, uh, more, I was most focused on Afghanistan at the time. And it was very much part of that moment in history, late 90s into the early 2000s. Uh, Afghanistan seemed a really interesting question around, or situation around which, uh, questions about Muslim identity, belief, and organization uh, could be explored uh, in, in meaningful ways. But um, being a Pakistani myself and my access and my sort of interest also being very finely tuned within the Pakistan borders, uh, I ended up focusing on the what was known up until 2018 as a federally, federally administered tribal areas or the tribal areas of colonial India. And I worked on Muslim religious mobilization in those territories through the colonial period from about the 1880s to the 1940s. The influences on me were um, very much my colleagues, my professors at SOAS. So a lot of people who actually aren't there anymore, but uh, whose ideas and engagement with my work really shaped uh, the journey that I would embark upon. I was from very early on very influenced by uh, Sandra Freetag's work on the public and um, the, and the, all the debates around what was the public space in colonial South Asia. And those ideas were in my mind as I worked on this text and my first, what was my thesis and then became my first book on the frontier tribal areas or the tribal areas of colonial India. And, um, and then after that, uh, I took on a number of different projects exploring Muslim social history in a variety of different ways always with a very close focus on what sources were available to us and how we could really creatively use uh, writing and other forms of historical evidence produced by Muslim South Asians in order to address the sorts of questions that we were presented with. So I was always trying to look for a way to get away from the story that the colonial government was telling, um, not because I didn't use those texts, those are the most pervasive and important sources available to us as historians. But of course, because I was influenced by the all so the, the whole move of the academy towards and in, in post academic work in post-colonial societies towards really engaging uh, local voices and vernacular texts. And and so I worked on a variety of interesting, engaging projects. I had children, I took time out, I traveled, I learned Arabic, I moved to Dubai. Um, it, it's, it was a whole lot of fun and uh, there were all sorts of new ideas to explore along the way. Uh, and then much later, uh, so about eight years ago now, so well, after six years of this journey, this personal journey after my PhD, I came to back to this idea that had, and these questions that had uh, 
sort of been so important when I was a graduate student, these questions of what was the public. And I think the academy had moved on at that time from these questions and we did them quite thoroughly explored. And so I came to this project, the Mosques of Colonial South Asia. But when I started the project, I expected to explore the contours of the public through the space of the mosque. Uh, I assumed like everybody did, the mosque was a public space. It's accessible, it's open, there are no apparent barriers to entry. Of course, provided uh, sort of gendered barriers to entry, we know that women don't participate in this space historically in South Asia. Um, but beyond that exclusion, I really did expect to find uh, the mosque to be this robust space of organization and conversation among Muslims. And uh, I, I expected to find answers to the questions, uh, which some of the questions which remained unanswered in the field. Like what are the professed motivations of Muslims when they organize around issues of faith? Uh, do they talk about what they want and expect? And I really did expect to find answers to those questions. So that was the journey that got me to this book. Uh, that's really fascinating. Uh, that again got me thinking about the question of gender um, spaces, of why women are not allowed into mosques, especially this is something that is uh, at least seen in South Asia very uh, vehemently. And I think to digress a bit, uh, there was a recent, uh, um, I think one of, one of the independent journalists in India went around asking people as to uh, what they think about women rights and uh, some of these interviews were done in mosques to to um the local imams and and you know uh, imams and muezzins and they were like no women women are not required to come to mosque and there were some really surprising answers even for anyone who would want to um who, who would believe why would women not be allowed into the mosque? But yeah, it's, it, I, I think that's again one of one fascinating space to uh, look at. So coming to this particular book and project, what brought you to this particular project? What brought you around to start uh, pushed you into looking towards this area, um, this role of mosque in in so, public space? Yeah. So I. Uh... So again, I, I thought that I would find that mosques were uh, the, the, the a place where this robust conversation was happening. And uh, through the work of many other people, um, I came to these the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council files, these uh, legal collections uh, of documents relating to specific uh, legal suits that originated in India and uh, or in any colonial territory and through a process of appeals uh, made their way up to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which was the highest court of appeals in the colonial, uh, under the colonial state. And what was important about these files was that they were, uh, they preserved evidence, including testimonies of uh, participants in these disputes, defendants, and uh, simply people who came to give evidence. And they preserved them uh, in all their nuance in detail uh, and were available in bound volumes in the British Library. And as I, so at some point along the way, had 
heard about these documents and happened to be in the British Library. And I discovered that there were a whole series of cases around mosques. There were cases about all sorts of things, about marketplaces, about temples, about inheritance rights, uh, about any, everything that ever went to the courts in uh, colonial India. And uh, I said, well, let's see what there is about these mosques. And these, um, of course, the cases originated in disputes about what was appropriate and what could happen in a mosque. And I discovered that each of these case files, and there were many of them, I, I worked with five eventually, but there were many more that I could have chosen to work with. Um, I discovered that these um, case files preserved actual testimony of everyday ordinary person describing how often they went to the masjid, how they prayed, how they, you know, what they expected to happen there and what they were met with when they were there. And I discovered that this, this is a very rich archive of uh, information about what is happening inside the very space that I've become so interested in. And I discovered that through these files, I could move from, through these documents, I could move from thinking about the mosque as a space of abstract uh, engagement talked about except extensively and, and as you must know Omar, in our Urdu and Persian writings from the subcontinent there's uh, no end of conversation about mosques but they're all very idealized and uh, th almost theoretical or generalistic or even dogmatic uh, and prescriptive texts about mosques these were but the documents I found these cases of the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council were detailed micro histories of everyday worship in these mosques. And uh, so I was finally able to move the project from being one of sort of a debate or dis dis discourses about mosques to being a project that was a study of what had happened in the mosques of colonial South Asia over a 80 or 90 year period. Well, well, that's wonderful. So um, moving on to the next question. So what, what was the kind of approach and methodology um, that you employ in building the narrative of this book? And what, how is it different if there have been previous research works on this? Uh, great question. So the, the most important prior work on mosques in South Asia from the perspective of Muslim social expectations related to mosques is uh, Kozlowski's book Muslim Endowments in uh, Muslim Endowments and Muslim Society in South Asia, and this is a book which uh, sets out the Muslim laws of vakf, the laws of vakf as they were uh, accommodated into colonial law, and describes the uh, Muslim claims to those sites, Muslim uses of, sorry, Muslim uses of the laws of vakf to protect their own property. And so that text was quite fundamental to first of all, bringing uh, Muslim, general Muslim social interests in the status of their religious sites to the attention of a broader field of historians of South Asia. And 
in that sense, uh, my work segues from Kozlowski's work because I also am concerned with and interested in Muslim social expectations related to mosques. Kozlowski treats Muslim interests in mosques in, or rather Muslim interests in the classification of sites as religious sites, as sacred sites. He treats that interest as being quite instrumentalist and uh, he takes a bit quite a cynical approach to Muslims' interest in their religious sites and says that Muslims were using the laws of trust to exclude their land and properties from the marketplace. They were creating uh, uh, land trusts and trusts including other assets uh, in order to, uh, to bypass the market and preserve their properties from colonial expectations of revenue payment or tax payment. And then were able to transmit their property and their assets to their successors, their children, their grandchildren in that manner. This is not incorrect. That, that was certainly happening. And Kozlowski certainly sets out that that was happening. He establishes this point, And we do know that that happened. But there were a variety of classifications of trusts. And uh, private these private trusts where properties were parceled and passed on to children were actually very different from mosques, which were not treated in the same way. Muslims did not uh, parcel properties. Uh, well, they they did parcel properties with these mosques, and they may some people may well have been instrumentalist and sort of self-serving when they did that. But the mosque itself, and so if we disregard any assets that might accrue to the mosque, shops or residential houses that accrued incomes. The mosque itself was not um, in any legal sense um, restricted for the use of the family members of, of the benefactor. The mosque was in fact a, a bequest to society at large. And while there may have been a range of interests around that bequest, uh, the mosque was not uh, restricted in its use, and Muslims did, from the documentation that we have, appear to be uh, really interested in uh, making a place of worship available to their fellow Muslim uh, community members. And, and so this is where uh, my work intervenes, is trying to understand the and trying to capture the um, interests of Muslims in both making such bequests, but also worshipping in mosques. Well, a challenging approach. Uh, and in, in this approach that you took, what were the sort of limitations that um, you felt was coming to your research? Like, how did you feel maybe with, with archival records or maybe in, in different spaces, what were the kind of limitations that you felt that limited your scope of your research? Uh, um, good question. Uh, certainly archival documentation. So in every case, while I was working from the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council records, I was always looking to supplement those records and my reading of those records with 
other texts from the same place in the same time uh, that related to similar questions. So um, I faced the usual uh, sort of, I found the usual dead ends, thought I'd find a document, didn't find it, knew that there was a text and then I couldn't find it, or often encountered a lot of silences around um, religious practice uh, in a particular place in a particular time. Um, but the, the, I would say the two biggest limitations were, one, that I couldn't visit India. So I tried several times to get a visa to visit India so that I could physically visit some of those mosques that I discuss in the book, um, but I couldn't. And so I think that was the most that was the most sort of constraining aspect of, of, um, of my journey. Uh, and it's not that, um, I mean, if you think about it theoretically, visiting a mosque today and my observations of it today should actually not uh, influence my understanding of that space 50 or 60 or 100 years ago. That was a different moment, a different time, different circumstances. But and so the theory would tell me that I can, you know, I can study this mosque from documents. I don't actually have to go and look at it. Um, but um, there's something very powerful about the built environment, and it's the individual experience of, of a space, my experience of spaces, as fundamentally shaping my understanding of how they function socially. Uh, I was able to visit the Rangoon Mosque, which is a subject of chapter two. And uh, that visit to Rangoon, now Yangon, in 20, I think it was 2017 or 2018 that I went there, it first of all connected me to a whole number of people from the area and who remain connected to the mosque who had living memory of some of the events that I discussed in the book. And they said, yes, that, that's a story we heard as well. So there was a confirmation of my understanding of the past. Um, and I also found all sorts of, uh, I, I was able to observe the connection between the mosque and the street and other mosques around it. And I saw that those connections uh, were, uh, were created by the passage of Muslims between these different spaces, the choices that worshippers made to go to one mosque or to another, um, the proximity of these buildings to one another, and uh, the connections were also constituted orally, like through the soundscape, through the passage of sound, or even image from inside to the outside of the mosque and vice versa. So, uh, my, I really regretted that I was not able to visit those three mosques that are, um, or those three sites that are in India that I discuss in the book. And I really do hope that someday I will get there. And for reference of the audience, what three mosques were these? Or three those, sites that you wanted yeah, to so those three are the mosque of Aurangabad near Bulanshahar, uh, the Juma mosque there, the mosque of Kanpur, uh, in also in the United Provinces, the Machli Bazar Mosque. And the third site was a mosque and Imam Bara in Kora Jahanabad. Uh, so those were all North India, all UP sites. Oh, and the, sorry, there's a fourth one, of course, the Mosque of Tajpur, Bihar. So there were the, the four that I didn't manage to visit. Yeah. 
So now that brings us to the structure of your book and how, um, what are the themes of your book and what structure your book um, runs with. Um, so you structured the chapters in and around the mosques and these have um, moved in progression with time. Uh, so you've you've seen how these different aspects and the, the the relation of people with the mosque and mosque with public and with the other elements of say, government and the colonial government legal social connections that this particular space has and um, how it's changed. So, for the sake of your audience, how would you simplify the kind of themes? that your book talks before we can go into discussing individual themes of your chapters? Um, the, uh, so the themes are, and uh, let's make sure I use the term themes appropriately. So the, <laughs> the, the big themes are um, the uh, Muslim uh, uh, relationship with, uh, with ritual practice, so what is orthodoxy and what is what are normative ritual uh, choices and values? Uh, the theme of everyday practice. So beyond these normative values, how what's actually happening? What kind of choices are Muslims making about their self-presentation in a sacred space? The kind of uh, activities that constitute their religious and pious lives. So everyday Islam. Uh, I look at the relationship between uh, the sacred space and the place of Muslim devotional practice and public spaces. So what is the relationship with the street and with the city soundscape and with the sort of broader legal regime that governs, uh, that governs all land? Uh, and I think those are the big themes. And of course, the, the biggest one is the theme of uh, what is uh, authority and what, is, uh, what are the forces, who are the people who shape Muslim everyday worship. So talking about the authorities and who influences Muslims' everyday ritual lives, a part of your book discusses about the kind of role the imams, muazzins, and the khatibs play. And, um, you know, how do you think that their role so far has been understood? And is so in, in consideration to what you talk about, how people understand the ulama versus how they understand the role of the imams or the local the mosque uh, custodians and, and, and the leaders of the mosque. So, you know, how do you draw a distinction between them? What are the differences when we are relating their, uh, the, the power structure between them and the public? There's this sort of silence in uh, academic literature about these everyday authority figures. We, there's a, there's a body of work that does recognize their significance. And I would say that that's more, that's generated more by the field of anthropology and contemporary uh, sort of, um, yeah, sort of contemporary observers of 
everyday Islam will tell you that uh, imams are important. Uh, we see a lot of work on Deobandi and Ahli Hadith and Barelvi imams and their everyday influence in, in today's world. But the body of work on Islamic, on theology, on Islamic traditions in South Asia turns to uh, the textual traditions and the um, discourses about Islam that are produced uh, earlier on in the Hanafi tradition and then uh, after maybe the 1800s are produced by uh, Deobandis and Ahli Hadith and Barelvis and a number of different ulama. And those discourses are silent about the Imam and the Muslim. And so uh, we are not entirely clear what their place is uh, based on our literature, but it's clear that they are important. Uh, they are visible figures of authority. Uh, custodians may be a little bit less so. They don't appear in everyday affairs. They don't, they're not present in everyday mosque life, but they're present usually through epigraphic representation or indication. So they're often the benefactor or the endower's name will be preserved in the physical facade of the mosque itself. So we know that these people are present. We know that they shape what's happening inside the mosque, but we not we don't have theory to work with on. Or we um, we don't have theory to work with on what it is that they do and what power and control they exert over Muslims or what influence they exert over Muslims. So, um, so, so that's sort of a central problem that I'm contending with with this book, and. Uh, and I'm working from these observations of uh, the role of the Imam Muslim and the custodian in the mosque as this role emerges in the micro histories of the mosque that I discuss in the book. Uh, can you remind me of the second part of your question? Have I answered your question appropriately? I think I was probably going with, uh, yeah, I, I think you have. It, it was about the power relation between these power holders and the public. So what kind of influence did they have? While I was, um, again, I, I did want to come to the uh, Tajpur Mosque of Bihar that you talk about in your first chapter and the kind of, I don't know, maybe can you call it a legal battle that the um, the Ahle Hadith and, and, and the Hanafi traditionalists had, if you can tell us a bit about that, the background. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great point to segue into that story, because that's the first one, the first story in the book, and the one that centers on the role of the uh, imam or the muezzin in the mosque. Um, the dispute, and it was a legal dispute, and it began in Tajpur, Bihar in 1883. And uh, the, and I'm going to you know, if it's uh, if it's a good idea, I'm going to pull up a map of uh, of oh, yeah. India here and also colonial South Asia, and I'm going to I'm going to use that to sort of work through the the book uh, because the, the map uh, shows you the sites that I focus on in this study, and you can see they're sort of they don't include sites in South India and they 
uh, really centered on that north and northwestern part of colonial South Asia, and then include Rangoon. Uh, so the dispute that originated in Tajpur Mosque was between Muslims who professed to be Hanafi and described themselves as Hanafi and Muslims who described themselves as Ahli Hadith. All of them were Sunni Muslims. They had shared beliefs. They shared a mosque. And nobody thought that anybody should be in any different mosque. They did fundamentally believe that they could and should worship together. But the expectations about worship were different. Um, the Hanafis were drawing on, a, on traditions that had been established during the Mughal period and uh, a tradition of worship that was mediated by and overseen by the legal officer of the Mughal state. Uh, they expected that uh, they would that they, they saw worship and uh, mosques as being, uh, worship as being carried out in mosques that were created by the benefaction of the state and by, or by elites. Uh, they treated mosques as civic spaces, and they really were important civic spaces that was a major source of uh, water, a space of rest and uh, relaxation. Uh, mosques were aesthetically very pleasing, and they were solid, often beautiful structures in, within what was otherwise uh, not a very uh, substantially evolved built environment. The mosque was made of marble and stone, whereas the houses around them, the mosque of Tajpur were smaller, they were modest homes, many of them made of wood and maybe plaster and brick, but none of them in this particular neighborhood, in this particular community, particularly magnificent houses, was an ordinary neighborhood and an ordinarily um, lovely small mosque that served its community. The Hanafi identifying members of the congregation at this mosque remembered the in, the, in their own lifetimes, they remembered um, the funds for this mosque as coming from vakf properties that had been granted by the local Qazi. They remembered the Qazi being involved in and managing disputes and settling matters related to the mosque. And then came a series of legal transformations relating to vakf law, legal transformations initiated by the British to for the British to rid themselves of the responsibility for continuing to manage these mosques and continuing to allow these mosques to accrue revenue, to accrue uh, funds from the vakf properties attached to them. The British wanted two things. So with their Mughal predecessors, and, their, and this was true across all of India, late, in all of the late uh, pre-colonial states, the local rulers gave revenue generating or, or acknowledged the grants of revenue generating land to the mosques. And they appointed legal officers who settled disputes related to mosques. This is fundamentally the case everywhere. The British originally inherited that role and in many cases, in many different cities across North India, carried out these uh, responsibilities with great 
passion and interest. There's stories of colonial officers in Delhi settling disputes related to mosques there and roundly criticizing custodians who misuse funds and intervening and trying to get things settled. Um, but by the 1860s, overall, the colonial state didn't want this responsibility anymore. They wanted to resume as much of this tax-free land as possible. And there's uh, a great deal of land had been given had been uh, granted to tax-free to all sorts of organizations, temples, mosques, shrines, um, uh, many different recipients uh, uh, through the pre-colonial period. So the the British wanted to resume all of that tax-generating land. And they also didn't want to have to bear the expenses of and the trouble of managing mosque affairs, whether that's providing funds for the repair of a mosque, or whether that's settling dispute between two people who worship in a mosque. And so the laws now removed the state from any involvement in the affairs of mosques. This is fundamentally transformative to religious practice. And in the case of Tajpur, the way that that transformation was felt was by the Muslims who wanted to worship in the manner they had been accustomed to worshiping, under the late Mughal state, and discovering that there are Muslims who want to worship in a different way, at the Ahli Hadith, who wanted to loudly vocalize the Amin during their prayer. And this rub, this uh, sense of offense, uh, spiraled into the first conflict that I describe in the book, which eventually found its way to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. And what the Hanafis wanted was for the state to say that the, that the general will of the Muslims should prevail in the mosque. But the state and the courts did not think that they had any business trying to ascertain what the general will of Muslims was in relation to their devotional practices. And so the state withdrew. And as the case made its way through the courts, the eventual resolution was that, well, The mosque and what happens in it is not the affair of the state. If the leader of the prayer in the mosque, the imam or the muzin or the khadin, depending on which tradition you're working with, these terms are very, the leader of the prayer in the mosque is overall correct and, you know, is not doing something utterly egregious or blasphemous. Well, then their will can prevail in the prayer hall and the general expectations of Muslims do not need to be upheld and do not need to be enforced in that space. And so in that moment, with that verdict, the imam or the prayer leader, who had been a very insignificant actor through the late pre-colonial and the early colonial period, became the decider of ritual practice inside the mosque. So, and so that's the story of Taj Bihar. Well, so through that process, again, we, we spoke about the relation of the leaders inside to the people. Now, in your second chapter, this kind of turns, and we are looking at how the people themselves wanted to bring in something new. We are talking about the Friday Mosque of Rangoon, uh, where the people there are motivated with the desire to have, I guess, a madrasa and the influence and management of, of the mosque school. They wanted to participate democratically in the management. But then 
the judicial council uh the jcpc comes up with another judgment 1916 if you can tell us a bit about that and how that was changing the power structure absolutely so that story relates to the the friday mosque of rangoon uh which is uh um captured in this image here this is a 1871 photograph by a british traveler and the mosque is on the right hand side of the street so you're looking towards a different religious building and here on the right you can see the friday mosque of rangoon so this had been built in the 1850s rangoon itself was an unusual fascinating urban story it had grown out of being a very tiny sleepy village town along this uh in this delta region along the uh, burmese peninsula and uh, the british decided early on that this was going to be a new major trading port uh, for the colonial state and so in a period of maybe 30 or 40 years many hundreds of thousands of people's mi- people migrated and settled here and the colonial state embarked on this massive project of urban design and town planning to create the city Uh, out of um, what is, in, in some many ways, quite an inhospitable physical environment. There was malaria-ridden and very marshy, and drainage was an issue, and um, also there were all sorts of issues. Uh, and in this new evolving landscape, uh, many Muslims migrated. Very many diverse Muslims from all over uh, colonial uh, South Asia, and you know, even as far as Afghanistan. So there were Punjabi, Afghan, Tamil. Gujarati, Surati, um, Nepalese, all sorts of Muslims who migrated here, along with a large number of other people—not just Muslims, of course, many hundreds of thousands of people—migrated to Rangoon and settled. And like uh, Muslims had done in many different places over hundreds of years preceding, uh, the Muslims of Rangoon built their own mosques as places of worship for their community members uh, in that new and very difficult. new place of settlement and over the years that mosque which you see on the right grew from being a small wooden building that just accommodated maybe 30 or 40 worshipers to being a massive uh, beautiful white marble structure with the minarets you see it's inside the floors were made of burmese teak so they they um they purchased and uh and refurbished this building purchased these materials for the building the um the pulpit of the mosque was uh imported from uh i think it was from gujarat and it was a, a magnificent piece it was fully carved out of a single piece of marble and imagine the kind of expenditure and the um the uh the sort of joy that uh, the benefactors of this mosque took in in beautifying and and um, enhancing this building and the mosque was a place for worship for all of rangoon's uh, many muslims there were local burmese uh, muslims who had converted uh, there were uh, like i said tamil muslims gujarati muslims and from gujarat a number of different communities there were surati randeri uh bori communities all of them self differentiating among themselves but they knew each other well the mosque had been endowed by a randeri uh muslim uh mullah abdul hashim and he 
having endowed the mosque, having developed it, and he made many charitable endowments. He was he had established charitable funds to serve travelers to to Burma um, to help people go on Hajj to help people get married. So he was very he had become very wealthy in Burma, and he uh, he enjoyed uh, contributing parts of his wealth, portions of his wealth, to public Muslim benefit. The over the years, um, the mosque sort of was a centerpiece. It became a centerpiece of Muslim life, and um, Mullah Hashim, as he grew older and then he died, he set out the terms of custodianship, uh, management of the mosque uh, after his own lifetime, and he said that he entrusted the custodianship of the mosque to members of the Randeri community. He said that. Uh, all Muslims, all Sunni Muslims of Burma will come and worship here. They have free worship during on Friday prayers, daily prayers, five days times a day. But the mosque will be managed by members of my own community. And he very narrowly defined that community. Uh, the Randiri community was extremely well organized in Rangoon as well. They seem to have regular meetings, uh, an understanding, documentation of who members of the community were. So this concern with community was not incidental or casual. Community was a central feature, organizing feature of Muslim life in Burma. Um, so, um, so the Randeri, uh, members of the Randeri community continued to manage the mosque and all Muslims came and worshiped in it. Being the Friday mosque and being really such a, such a um, inspiring place, uh, all Muslims felt that they had a claim on it. And various members of the congregation would ask uh, to uh, that the custodians make arrangements for the milad, for example. The custodians themselves, the Randeris, didn't believe in celebrating the milad, but you know they would sometimes uh, in, uh, accommodate these expectations from congregation members. Uh, they also provided schooling. Uh, there was a school that was run and managed by the custodians of the mosque, and that as very often is the case. And that school was um, uh, admitted students from all parts of the community. Uh, but over time, it became clear, and there was a lot, this is a period of now the early 1900s, a period of intense political thinking and organization among Muslims across India. And Muslims were thinking about what it meant to have control over this institution, about their own institutions. And in the case of Rangoon, the institution of the Friday Mosque. And led by one of the community members, Ahmed Mullah Daud, a group of Muslims in this, who worshipped at this mosque said, there's no reason why the Randeris should be the custodians and that custodianship should pass down uh, through succession through this community. We are all members of the congregation here. We all worship here. And the custodians of the mosque should be chosen by democratic vote by all of the members of the congregation. It was interesting. This proposal was inspired by a case that was going on in Mauritius at exactly the same time where the Muslims of whether Gujarati Bora Muslims of a mosque there had uh, proposed exactly the same formulation, a democratic society of, of the congregation that would choose and make decisions for their mosque. The colonial state and the colonial courts received this 
petition and the case you know, wound its way through the courts. And eventually the decision came that no, the, the, despite the expectations of Muslims, despite their deep investment in this institution, and really it's a deep investment, it's, this was their devotional lives, but it was also the education of their children. Um, and there weren't a whole lot of very good schools in Rangoon at the time. And so they wanted, the congregation wanted to have influence over decisions that were made in the school as well. And the colonial court said, well, based on their reading of Vakf law, uh, a mosque was not a democratic space, that the congregation and the worshippers had no right of anything except the right to enter to worship. It was really the same decision that had been made in the Tajpur mosque case, that worshippers can come and worship, but the programming, the form of instruction in the mosque, that is set by, that is oriented by the will of the benefactor. It is oriented by the will of the initial Bani, the endower of the mosque, and his appointed custodians, so the managers of the mosque. And that moment, that's where the second transformation happens. Uh, the role of the custodian, the role of the mosque manager is elevated from being simply a manager of the affairs of the mosque to being the authority in the mosque who can determine and set the instructional priorities that prevail inside the mosque. Well, that's a fascinating case that um, gets me thinking about how things are actually quite different. I, I, I don't know if um, striking a difference between the north of India and south of India is um, really valid here, but um, I, I think those power structures are a little different, uh, at least when it comes to South of India, and probably I'm speaking this from my um, uh, experience, is that um, the e even here, the endowers get to define uh, as to who teaches and who can lead the imam really has no say, the khatib has no say, he comes and goes, he's just like the other worshippers. But anyone who's running the um, uh, the the mosque or giving charity to the mosque are the ones who kind of have the control of what really goes on, what should happen. Because much of these events, like, like the mention of Milad, these require monetary fundings. And again, it's always going to come from people who have the money and uh, yeah. But I think again, uh, what I was trying to say is that in South of India, most of these benefactors, not one is allowed to rather overtake, not one person or one individual or family is allowed to. Uh, it's it's mostly about having the chanda that is collected in the mosque, the, the donations by everyday mm -hmm. Friday prayers of like donate so much for the mosque. And I think uh, that in a way contributes to the democratic say of the people who are the, congreg uh, the, the congregation in a way to do what they want to do in the mosque. I think uh, it's, it's a final thread of who is, it again comes down rather than what the court decides, rather comes down to who is funding the things in the mosque also brings a mm -hmm. important uh, picture. Yeah. So coming to, to, to your third chapter, and you talk about how um, uh, the JCPC basically makes a case or, or decides a case 
in the case of kanpur and aurangabad uh, uh the case of orang uh, in in aurangabad up in 1916 and how the space uh of uh, mosque should be uh, what is its relation when it comes to within its own space and the space outside so if you can tell us a bit about this interaction yes absolutely so this actually um is a an image from rangoon that i'm going to show you very briefly because it has pertinence to this discussion of the relationship between the mosque and the outside in rangoon in 1893 the on my rangoon like i had mentioned was a very diverse space there was a conflict between the muslims and the hindus of this very neighborhood around the mosque where uh in sort of fueled by this debate about the sacredness of the cow in the hindu tradition and the slaughter of the cow by muslims on eid the um there was a lot of uh, tension on the street the moment the morning of eid in 1893 the bakr eid in 1893 and so the state perceiving observing and anticipating that there could be conflict in this very populous and uh, this very very populous city deployed police on the streets outside the mosque and what you see here those arrows are a patrol lines deployments of police and you see how the state penetrates the uh, participation and the movement of people on the streets that uh penetration is intentional it's planned it's strategic it's uh you it has directionality and the state is thinking deeply the magistrate's office particularly magistrate being in charge of the district of and in the case of the city the city the city the magistrate is required to maintain order and so the magistrate um manages the street outside the mosque but we know a street is a street and we know a street is a public place and a mosque technically is an internal space it's what's happening within the building but we also know from this from our own experience from the observation of spatial participation that things don't quite fit separates quite so neatly in everyday worship people who present themselves in a sacred space for worship uh are engaged in a pious activity as they walk along the street people who are engaged in devotion within a building are affected by the sound that transgresses from without and so the state treated the street like a public space and like a space where devotional values with devotional values did not pertain but the fact is devotional values do pertain to the street in matters of everyday worship and that's where the story of the tajpur mosque begins uh so I, i beg your pardon the story of the friday mosque of aurangabad begins uh again you and many other observers and students of south asian islam will know that there have historically been tensions between uh those who uh partake in or express devotional attitudes on the street and 
those maybe who object to that expression of values on the street. And those conflicts involve all sorts of people. It's all sorts of taking different positions at different times. Hindu processioners on a street will face objections from Muslim devotees inside a mosque. Shia processioners on a street will face objections from Hindus within temples and Sunni Muslims within mosques. The space is a, the street is a place of enormous religious and devotional tension. And it would be one thing if you were to take the position of the state and to treat street devotionalism as something exceptional. So you can take that approach. And then street devotion is something exceptional, something that needs to be managed and treated cautiously and treated as a source of danger and endangerment. Or you can take an approach where you accept street devotionalism to be an everyday practice and you accept it to be one that is unresolved by the law and not accommodated by the laws that continue to, that in fact uh, prevail in South Asia today, laws that were shaped during the colonial period. The laws that we are dealing with in this particular case are the laws relating to the street. Uh, and here, this is, I believe, this is a Google Maps image and this is Aurangabad, so you know I never made it to India. So I do hope that this is the mosque. I mean, this is kind of my detective work that got me to this. And I'd love to someday connect with somebody from this city and find out if this is indeed the Friday mosque of Aurangabad that was contested in this suit in 1916. I think it is. So the mosque, two streets uh, are relevant to this mosque, the one behind the main road that you see on the right and the small street um, that runs right uh, behind the mosque. The main road is the main entrance to the mosque, very important. The street that you see behind the mosque, that lane, is uh, it, it bounds the western, the western, uh, um, the western facing front of the mosque. So that's the direction in which Muslims would pray if they're inside the mosque. This um, mosque in 1916, and this is a period of uh, tremendous uh, organization by Shia Muslims across North India. It's a period of litigiousness. Um, Shia Muslims are claiming their rights to devotionalism on the street and supporting different instances of tension which involved their community members all across North India. And so here in Muharram 1916, as the Shias of the town took their procession past this mosque, the Sunnis inside the mosque emerged and uh, they encountered the members of the procession. And they also encountered the police officer, the constable who was deputed to accompany this uh, procession. Now, remember from that image I showed you a minute ago, the colonial state was very wary of any sort of uh, religious activity on the street. There's tension across North India at this time. And this procession, like all processions, is being treated with caution and with care and with the deputation of police to manage the movement of people through the streets and to manage the devotionalism on the street. When the Sunnis of this mosque objected to the sound of the processions and the stop that the processioners made outside the mosque to perform matam, the constable who, uh, who uh, accounted for the Sunnis as being the predominant, uh, the largest population in this, in this town, the most consequential 
uh, numerically consequential group in the town and the most likely to create trouble and to successfully create trouble, he uh, cautioned the Shia processioners not to stop in front of the mosque and enforced their move on and did not allow them to vocally uh, engage in the devotional activities that they expected to do here. The next year that um, uh, that uh, decision was uh, issued in advance by the magistrate as an order that the Shias would not stop outside the mosque. And the same thing happened the following year. Now, supported by other community members and other Shias across the region, uh, the, and the Shias at this time were very wealthy. There were a small number, about two or 300 at the time, but they were wealthy and powerful and were traditional landowners from the region. And they weren't about to take this lying down. And so they filed what was one of the most important cases related to street devotionalism. And it's such a subtle point that I think it's often escaped notice, but it's, it's a very important case. They filed for the absolute right to take out processions and to engage in devotionalism on the street. And they filed an absolute right not subject to the order of the magistrate. So they said, we don't want the magistrate to authorize or to limit our what we can do on the street. We want a declaration of absolute rights of worship. And they pushed this case through from the local first, uh, the first um, registration of the case in the magistrate's office, all the way to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. Shortly, after, shortly before this incident was another case, which uh, I believe connects directly to this. And it's a case many people may be familiar with, the story of the Kanpur Mosque or the Machli Bazar Mosque. This mosque similarly had a perimeter that intersected with the street. In the case of the Aurangabad Mosque, that perimeter uh, of intersection was oral. It was the point where sound transgressed within and the point where people entered and exited the mosque. It was a, um, it was a, it was movement of devotees in and out and sound in and out of the mosque. Here, the perimeter of the mosque intersected in a much more tangible way with the street. The perimeter of the mosque was in the way of a road that the magistrate's office was authorizing be built and the governor's office had provided funds for. And so the governor's office had basically, after much debate with the local community, had gone ahead and knocked down the corner of the mosque. And you see that demolition there, knocked down the corner of the mosque in order to create the road that ran through this uh, town. And the, it, this uh, demolition generated an enormous debate about what Muslim devotees' rights were with regard to the street outside. And Ahmed Raza Barilvi, a very influential Barilvi, uh, religious thinker of the time, wrote and he said, the street absolutely pertains to the mosque. It absolutely does. The person who passes outside it, if a night sweeper passes outside the mosque or along the walls of the mosque carrying night soil, that is relevant for those who are entering and exiting and inside the mosque. Um, so all of these ideas of purity and devotion and piousness were brought in direct conversation with the ideas of what is the public street and who and what rights prevail on that street. Uh, and so these two cases, I think, are closely connected by both being concerned with the 
rights of devotionalism on the street. And it's it's a case which, you know, it could have, there was so much debate around it and so many people were invested in this question, Hindus included. And um, I mean, who knows? Maybe, you know, it, the truth is that nobody will ever agree on anything. But the courts refused to admit any conversational about devotionalism as being a fundamental social right on the street. And the case was decided with the case with the courts confirming that anything that happened on the street outside of quotidian passage for the purposes of work and economic activity, any other activity on the street was subject to the orders of the magistrate. And the magistrate ultimately had the authority to decide what happened on the street. And so this moment and the decision in this case came in 1924. And I see this as being that next moment in the clearly defining and circumscribing the rights and of Muslims within the mosque, but also clearly uh, appointing and recognizing a new authority in the lives of everyday Muslim worshippers. And that authority is the magistrate or the magistrate's office. And the thing that's interesting is we take it, we haven't really thought about uh, colonial officers or officers of the state as being authorities in matters of religion in South Asia. We sort of dismiss them as maybe being irritants or expressors of you know, state power or whatever it is. But we don't really think about the role that they have. And yet we observe that in any, anybody in South Asia today knows that uh, the custodians of religious buildings are constantly in conversation with the district magistrate's office. That person has a different name in different places. In uh, Kanpur, in the UP, it was a magistrate. In Pakistan, Punjab then, but Pakistan today is the district commissioner. And those that officer is of tremendous importance and significance in everyday worship and everyday Islam in South Asia. Agreed, agreed. Um, I think, uh, again, quite recently was the, even when the issue of Tablis, um during uh, the Tablis Jamaat happening during during COVID-19, and um, there, there was a clash in India. I think it, it was their uh, markas in, in Delhi that they had a lot of Tablisis come, and then they were being blamed for um, gathering in such huge numbers during the pandemic. Um, the, the, a clear link was seen as to the the communication between the district magistrate now in Delhi um, and municipal officers with the custodians of the markas and uh, how they communicated and decided what they will do. And, and basically, yeah, the relation, I think, still very strongly continues even to this day. Um, so coming to one of the most interesting chapters and interesting parts of your book, um, the Mosque of Shahi Ganj. I, I don't know, Shahid Ganj? Shahid Ganj. Shahid Ganj. Yeah. So uh, the, the Sikh Mahant who, who was, I don't know, maintaining the mosque, or was, was he occupied? point of the mosque and uh, you know the legal battle in terms of that if you can um, give us a brief about the Shahid, uh, Shahid Ganj mosque 
Absolutely. And so this, the Shahid Ganj, again, for people who, scholars of South Asia and for many uh, in Lahore, this is a well-known story. This was, um, the mosque is pictured here. This is a photograph taken, I think, in the early 1900s. It's one of the few remaining photographs, and it was published in a small uh, pamphlet in 1920, I think, 1930. It's a small, inconspicuous mosque building, and it's part of a much larger endowment that had been created by a member of the Mughal nobility in 18th century Lahore. And it was, uh, it had been, it was near, um, it was near the old city. Um, it was, uh, uh, and later the railway station uh, was built and was situated quite close to this site. The, during the period of Sikh rule in Lahore, uh, from the late 1700s, around 1799. This masjid fell out of use and the entire site came under the control of Sikh Mahants. Now, how that happened is a really interesting question. And I'm not entirely sure that I can give you an answer as to what happened but and how it happened. But I don't think it's quite so simple as the endowment simply being taken over by six under the authorization of the Lahore Darbar. I think it's maybe a slightly more complex interplay of devotional traditions. There was also a Sufi practice at this site, a Chishti, a Chishti shrine and a Chishti teaching and learning tradition. And the members of that, the Gaddi Nasheen of that shrine was also the manager of this mosque. He was the custodian of the mosque. And because there was interaction between that uh, teaching and learning tradition, that Chishti community, and a broader sense of pattern of Sikh devotional activity in Lahore at this time, somehow this site came to become a site of Sikh worship and Sikh control of the buildings also and management of the buildings. The issue... It's hard when you're looking at the pre-colonial period to be too easy with, with definitions and terms because the terms we use are very derived from the colonial legal tradition. And so it's only in 1849 that I can say to you with certainty that the site is classed as a Sikh endowment as the British colonial state in 1849 starts to carry out surveys of the city of Lahore. Now, Lahore had now become a colonial city and the surveyors documented Sikh presence and management at this shrine, at this site, at the entire uh, site, which included not just this building that had been a mosque, but also included a shrine, many groves. I'm going to show you how large the site is. It's a massive site around the Nalakha Bazaar. Uh, it, it runs both sides of this road, many different buildings, two acres, uh, I think, and that was after excluding many different plots or from this site. So the British surveyors coming through the city in 1849 are documenting all proprietary rights across Lahore and into its rural agrarian hinterlands. And they very quickly want to ascertain rights in sites because they want to very quickly start collecting taxes and revenues on land in Lahore. 
And so this site being under the control of Sikh custodians is classed as a Sikh site. And the plan that you see in front of you is a Sikh plan, which, and here, what's very important here is the labeling of different buildings. So you have the, of course, the proprietary shop and house possessed by Lala Kishanchand. Shops and house possessed by, that's simple. The difficult one is if you look on the left-hand side of this plan, the lower half, you see the three domes. That was the building that was classed as a mosque that Muslims saw as a mosque. And you can actually see the domes here. Mm-hmm. This is the building that had been a mosque. And it's classed here as the Shaheed Ganj Singhania. The, um, and uh, above it, there's various buildings here, and many of them are given a, a religious connotation. Uh, so there's a Gurdwara, you can see a Samadhi. There's um, various Gurdwaras on this site. There's, uh, and actually what you can't see, I should have included it, right on the top left of the map, there's, you see, you see the word Shaheed Ganj there? That was the building, that's the part of the site that gives this entire endowment its name in the colonial period. That was, is a shrine to Sikh martyrs of the Afghan and late Mughal state who were memorialized in the Sikh period as having been martyred by Muslim rulers. And a shrine was built there. And so this whole site takes on enormous significance during the Sikh period and in the very early colonial period in Lahore. And it is documented as being a Sikh site. The problem arose in the fact that Muslim memory related to this site prevailed and persisted into the colonial period. And here you have a Muslim map or plan of the same site and you see the difference in the representation of sacred buildings on this site. Uh, so there is, you see a reference to the Gurdwara at the very bottom of this plan, but the building of the three domes is classed as a mosque. And the Shaheed Ganj uh, shrine is actually not depicted on this plan. And this was the problem that Muslim memory of the endowment from the Mughal times and the use of the mosque in Mughal times prevailed. And the problem arose in this fact. And the problem is not just that memory prevailed. The problem arose in the fact that the Muslim legal position, the the legal discursive tradition on the land that pertains to the mosque differed from the colonial legal position on the land that pertained to the mosque. Um, A large number of Muslims over the course of from 1849 up until 1936, wrote and discussed and argued that a mosque can never not be a mosque. A mosque, once endowed, is a mosque forever. And once the land that is given to a mosque by an endower is given to a mosque, that land effectively leaves the marketplace for land. It will be a mosque forever. And this position that was slowly articulated and developed over many years and finally presented in the legal suit that is the subject of chapter four and went again to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council 
set out that position quite clearly that a mosque can never not be a mosque. But the colonial state had a very different law, and it was one that was fundamental and central to the entire land legal regime pertaining to land. And that um, law was that land has to remain occupied and used. And if somebody takes over a piece of land and occupies it for 10 years, anybody, you could, you could go do it today. And if you did it and documented that, um, that uh, uh, possession of the land, even if that possession of the land was adverse to the actual property title holder of that land, if you had like gone and uh, if you if if somebody was to simply go and occupy another piece of land and farm it and tend it and live on it for ten years uncontested, that land becomes theirs, and this rule was fundamental to the entire legal regime, property regime of colonial India. And that was the rule that was applied in the Shahid Ganj case. That's why in 1849, despite the fact that Muslims, even in 1849, went to the colonial surveyors and said, look, this building used to be a mosque up until you know, 20, 30 years ago. We used to pray here. You can't class this as a gurdwara. You cannot class this as a Sikh site. The surveyor said, the rule of adverse possession says that if they have been in control and occupation of this site for the last 10 years, well, this land is theirs. And that was the basis on which the land was documented as being a Sikh religious site and remained that despite the efforts of Muslims to overturn the, that rule and to simply reclass the land pertaining to a sacred site as something other than proprietary land, land and class it as land that can never be returned to the marketplace. And so, um, and so with that decision, uh, I argue that here you see the authorization of yet another authority in matters of religion. And that authority is so visible to us and so familiar to us, and yet we simply have not acknowledged their authority in matters pertaining to religion. And that is the Land Survey Office and the Land Registration Office of Colonial South Asia. I think we will uh, we'll come to the conclusion of our interview. Um, I wish we could go deeper and discuss the fifth chapter. But uh, before we do in the interview, I just wanted to talk about what do you think is the uh, kind of relevance that your work holds in trying to understand the relationship and the kind of uh, even the social legal relationship of mosque and its spaces in in particular, but even you know religious spaces in general? Um, it this book should have pertinence to all studies of religious sacred spaces in South Asia. It is, I think, although I haven't made this argument at all, I would have to examine it much more closely. I think that the pattern of colonial dealing with mosques is the pattern that is repeated with temples and with other places of worship, Zoroastrian places of worship, um, uh, Al-Khani places of worship across uh, the colonial period. And uh, it uh, Hindu and Sikh places of worship, and what it is, what it demonstrates, what this book demonstrates is that 
this whole world of devotional practice, this world of worship, which is incredibly powerful. And if you simply are to try to quantify and enumerate uh, or um, quantify the, the volume of activity and movement and, and uh, organization around places of worship, it, it is possibly the single most important story of South Asia that we can tell because so much of life is caught up in these devotional practices in everyday life in South Asia. And what I am telling you is that this world of devotional life is not disorganized. It is not being formulated simply through, um, it's certainly shaped by what Muslims are saying to one another about ideas and discourses, about um, presentations of, of, uh, of uh, ideas in print, and in new media now, uh, it, all those things influence what people, Muslims believe about worship. But all of that world of worship is governed by a series of laws that set out the limits of Muslim activities within mosques and designate and authorize a set of authorities who are going to manage the affairs of the mosque. And they are surprising to us. They are both people we recognize and people to whom we've never accorded this kind of influence in matters of religion. And yet it turns out they have enormous influence in matters of religion. And so, uh, so, so that's how the book intervenes in the story of Islam in South Asia. And I think that the same thing is happening uh, across all of South Asian devotional spaces and all of devotional life in South Asia is being slowly uh, uh, handed over to the oversight of these ubiquitous everyday officers who function on the part of both religious buildings and communities, but also function as, as uh, authorities for the state. Well, absolutely. I, I completely agree to that. Um, before we talk about um so, so one of the questions that we usually ask is uh what work are we looking forward uh from your side what are you currently working on and what work can we be looking forward to uh before we come to that i just wanted to ask you a little maybe a little suggestion for students or people who are interested in exploring spaces of religious studies or especially in south asia um, and the inner workings of these uh, private and public spaces, the interactions, uh, even in legal history or South Asian history, South Asian studies in general, what would you suggest to them for someone who wants to explore the space, for someone who wants to start anew? Well, one thing I will say is that um, don't be afraid of micro-histories. They are... Uh, incredible, they can be incredibly productive. And I think where we have more and more examples of very powerful micro histories being written. They're also so intellectually and personally rewarding. Um, so that's one thing I will say, you know, do, do turn your attention to the study of individual institutions and buildings and spatial practices and devotional practices around those, uh, around those sites. Uh, the other thing that I would recommend is use new methods. So our methodologies are limited. Our archival practices are limiting. 
I used uh, I used um, the Privy, Judicial Committee, the Privy Council records, and there are many more. And I think those can be mined further and further. I don't think there's any limit to what can be done with these records. So I strongly encourage people to use those records. They're in the British Library. Uh, and they're very easy to find and to navigate also. So do, do pursue that route. Um, but I also suggest that people use new methodologies. Oral history is very powerful. It's a great tool. Um, and uh, vernacular text can also be used in very creative ways to shape our understanding of what's happening in individual sites. So, so that's what I would recommend is, is yes, I hope that there's way more work because I love reading it and uh, I'd love to see what more comes out of this field. Uh, well, thank you so much. So uh, to our last question, what are you currently working on? Are you working on something right now? And what works can our audience keep an eye on coming from you? Uh, I, it would be great if, if your audience would, would look out for my work. I'm always excited when somebody reads anything I've written. So uh, it, it would be, uh, there's, I have maintained my work and my interest in the uh, frontier tribal areas, and I am working, I, ha I have a paper coming out on uh, law in those territories. So again, thinking about the status of that territory in Pakistan from 1947 until 2018. And I have a, uh, and I have some new work coming out, which utilizes oral history methodologies. And there I'm really, I've really been trying to work on my uh, my facility with that method. Uh, but what I'm really hoping to do is to start to move on to a more spatially oriented approach to writing history and to overall, to, to writing bigger histories of South Asia using a spatial approach. So my first work was on the frontier tribal areas. This is about mosques. And I have a few other pieces that I've been trying to piece this story together with, but I'm trying to see if I can really use a spatial approach to write a bigger history and maybe a more accessible one of South Asia um, in the modern period. Well, thank you so much. This was a delightful conversation and we're really glad to have you on our podcast. Uh, we are looking forward to uh, your new works and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Umar. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you everyone for tuning into this conversation. We really hope you enjoyed this. And if you did, please consider subscribing to our channel and podcast for more such amazing content. There is a series of such amazingly curated interactions with authors and scholars on the history of the subcontinent. Check out our website, www.indiacolonized.com for more blogs and podcasts exploring the tales of India's contemporary history. Do follow us on our social media sites for more exciting updates. Until next time, stay safe and stay curious.